We read Malachi 3:13 to 15. 3:13 to 15. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Amen. The prophet has pursued a disputational format, a disputation. We have seen many of them throughout the book, and now we are on the final one, the last one. And what is it? The Lord sees the sin of the people. The Lord announces. He confronts the sin of the people. The people respond, What? What are you talking about? Why are you so serious? Why are you accusing me of something? What is it, Lord? Why would you do or do or say something like that to me? Then the prophet answers. They sound astonished. They sound surprised. But the prophet answers with the content, the actual indictment. He presents the indictment. What is it that they've done? And usually we don't have a response after that. We will finally, in 16 to 18, see next time that there were some who feared the Lord, who spoke to one another. The majority did not, but there were some in 16 to 18. After all of these disputations, they realized that they needed to humble themselves, repent, fear the Lord, believe in His Word, and follow Him faithfully. They realized it by the end of the book. Some of them did. But up to this point, the prophet has to reiterate. The prophet has to repeat. The prophet has to keep bringing up the sins of the people until some repent. That's the format. That's the way it's laid out here in the book of Malachi. This is actually the case in many places throughout Scripture. It takes the prophet, the apostle, the disciple, the saint to see the sin of the people, bring it up, and then have to deal with their counter-arguments, their surprise, that they are offended. They say, well, what are you talking about? Why would you say such a thing about me? And then the disciple, the saint, has to explain to the people and convince them. He has to persuade them. He has to convince them. He has to keep on speaking the word of the Lord to them before a few of them believe. Sometimes the first time they believe, but many times it takes many, many disputations before people believe. The preaching of the word has to be accompanied by a fight, but a good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. That is the kind of approach the Bible expects of us, not only by the prophet Malachi, but all of us. Well, the final one, the final accusation, the final disputation, it starts in verse 13. The Lord is speaking. 
the Lord speaks through the prophet. And in that way, whenever we speak the word of the Lord, the Lord is speaking through us to others. And it says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Whenever they speak a word that contradicts the Bible, it is being born of arrogance. Whoever says anything that contradicts the Bible is arrogant or proud, full of hubris. That's what he is. So he accuses them of that. Your words have been arrogant against me. Notice also he says, against me. Whatever they say, though they will take, the name, take up the name of the Lord, they take up the name of the Lord in vain. In vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. They use the name of the Lord and they claim to be the Lord's people. However, whenever they say something that contradicts the word of God, they are against God. Whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they know it or not, whether they admit it or not, that's the reality. They are against God. And as usual, verse 13 Yet you say, yet you say. This is the reality. The accusation, the indictment is that they are arrogant. But then the response of the people, yet you say. They have an answer. They have an answer of astonishment. They are amazed. Why would the prophet, the prophet of the Lord be speaking against them? They say, what have we spoken against you? What in the world did we say? What in the world did we do? I thought everything was just fine. That's what they're thinking. I came to worship. So now that I came to worship, why are you approaching me on something like this? I came to please God, to worship God. So why would you have any kind of accusation like this? What in the world did we say that was such an affront to God, such an offense to God? Such blasphemy against God. He repeats it, or they repeat it. What have we spoken against you? They realize there's an accusation that they are against God. And then they say, what did we say against God? We're not against God. We believe in God. Everybody reacts that way, correct? Everybody says that. We're not against God. We are for God. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. I know I'm saved, and you cannot accuse me of not being saved. That's what they're saying in 13. So the prophet answers. He gives them what they need to hear. 14. You have said. The prophet has heard. He has heard what they have said against God. What is it? This is the evidence. The evidence is presented. They have said, it is vain to serve God. It's vain. It's useless. It's futile to serve God, to obey God, to worship God, to do the will of God. They say it's vain. What's the point? What's the benefit? What am I doing here? 
They further say, And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What's the benefit? What is the profit? Nothing good has come of this. I've, they, they say, We've been keeping his charge. We've been obeying him. We've been doing what he told us to do. We even did it in mourning. We even did it beating our breasts. We even did it with prayer and fasting. We humbled ourselves. We wept. We did all this. But what's the benefit? It's useless and there's no profit, they say. What is it that they wanted from God? Was it health? Was it wealth? And since in their own mind, whatever health and wealth they wanted, and God did not deliver, is this the result then? They say it is vain. What is the profit? God is there, after all, to give me what I want. I want health and wealth. I want glory. I want gold. I want giddiness. I want fame, fortune, and fun. I want those, and God is there to meet my needs. After all, He created the world to love me. He created me to love me. That is the general sentiment. That is the general belief in the world. Why would God create me unless He really loved me and wanted me to have whatever I ask of Him? That's not only a belief in idolatry and paganism, it's a belief in Christianity. Not that it is a Christian biblical belief, but many within Christianity think that God created the world to love every person in the world, to love every person spiritually and give them eternal salvation, and also to love every person physically and give them whatever earthly, physical, tangible benefits they want whenever they ask, whenever they pray, whenever they worship. That God is there for those reasons. And then whenever I have mourned, whenever I have admitted I have done wrong, I have fasted, I fasted and prayed for something, therefore it should have come to fruition. That's the complaint. There's no benefit in walking that way, in living that way, they say. Not only that, 15. So now, remember, the wicked people are still speaking. Verse 15. So now, we call the arrogant blessed. We call the arrogant blessed. The accusation in 13 is, your words have been arrogant against me. But now they're saying in 15, so now we call the arrogant blessed. Okay, whatever you're saying, prophet Malachi, whatever you're saying, but the arrogant are blessed. Why are the arrogant blessed, Malachi? If what you say is true, why do they have everything? 
Why do they have health and wealth? Why do they have fame, fortune, and fun? Why is everything going well for them? They live to be 80, 90 years old. Why is it that way? Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They are built up. They do wickedness. So if they do wickedness and are still built up, they still have everything. There's no danger in their life. They don't slip and fall. Nothing happens to them. They live a healthy and wealthy life in their old age, and they die a peaceful death. They're built up, but they did wickedness their whole life. What else did they do? They also test God. They test God. They test God here in wickedness. They test God here in unbelief. They test God by scoffing at God. They are not testing God as God invites them in 3 verse 10. Test me now in this. That kind of test is in faith. But this kind of test in 3.15 is in unbelief. So the wicked are saying, well, the doers of wickedness are built up. They also test God, such as they brazenly say, okay, God, I'm going to do thus and so. I'm going to do these evil deeds, and I dare you. Strike me dead immediately. I dare you, God. Take away my life right now. And then they do it for a week, a month, 10 years, their whole life. And they say, there's no God because I did all this and he never judged me. He never punished me. There's no God. In fact, they escape, it says right there. They are saying, they also test God and escape. Nothing happens. No trouble no turmoil. Two seventeen, two seventeen in Malachi, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, "How have we wearied him?" In that you say, "Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them." Or, where is the God of justice? 2.17 is similar to what we're reading here in 3.13 to 15. Fundamentally, people think that on the surface, they think this. Because of what they see, and they see that evildoers prevail. Evildoers are not punished in this world. Evildoers are blessed with material possessions. Because evildoers prosper in those ways, people, the onlookers, the spectators, they are saying, well then, God approves of it. God thinks they are good. 
God is not a God of justice. They escape the judgment of God. That is the conclusion or the wrong conclusions. They arrive at those conclusions because what is the problem? They think that only today or only tomorrow or in 10 years, God is only going to prove that he's a God of justice, a God of judgment, if he takes care of that business now. What's wrong with them? They're not looking forward. They're not anticipating the day of judgment. That is the fundamental issue. Men who do not fear God and who wrongly interpret the events of life, wrongly interpret the evils of life, wrongly interpret the tragedies of life, when they wrongly interpret them, that's because they don't believe in the day of judgment. If they believed in the day of judgment, then they would understand in faith and in hope that God will resolve all things on the day of judgment. Everything will be taken care of then and there. 3.16 says, we'll read 3.16 into chapter 4. 3.16 to 4 verse 3. The few who did repent understand the day of judgment. 3.16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Chapter 4, verse 1, 1 to 3. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Those who fear the Lord, they have a book of remembrance, verse 16. Why a book of remembrance? In what way is God going to remember them? Because of verse 17, on the day that I prepare my own possession, God has a day, the day. He is preparing his own possession. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. When those who fear the Lord understand the day of judgment, God will spare them on the day of judgment from punishment. But meantime, 
Verse 18, we practice discernment. We distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. That is our duty now, to make a distinguishing practice day by day. Who is righteous? Who is wicked? Who is serving God? Who is not serving God? Then he repeats it in verse 1, 4 verse 1. The day is coming. That day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. Why is he using the analogy of fire? Because of 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the, the apostle Peter says that the day of judgment will come like fire also. The first global judgment was with water in the days of Noah. The second global judgment will be with fire. God will destroy the earth with fire and the people eternally will be destroyed by fire. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Thrown into the lake of fire. Further, who are they? The arrogant and every evildoer. That's what we saw in 2.17. That's what we saw in 3.13 to 15. That those who persist in their arrogance, those who persist in doing evil, practicing wickedness, that day will make them like chaff. Verse 2. The son of righteousness in chapter 4, verse 2. Who is this son of of righteousness. The son of righteousness is Christ. The son of righteousness is Christ. He will rise with healing in its wings. It meaning like the sun, S-U-N. But the son of righteousness is an individual, Christ himself. And on that day, we, it says, Our souls, the soles of our feet, verse 3, we are going to tread down, we're going to punish, we are going to judge the wicked on that day of judgment. We will have the victory. They will be humiliated for all eternity because of us on the day which I am preparing, the day of judgment. And also, verses 4 to 6, we find that Elijah is coming who is going to prepare the way for the son of righteousness. The same as chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, my messenger. The messenger is John the Baptist. And he, John the Baptist, will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom... You delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Chapter 3, verse 1, we take with chapter 4, verse 2, and also chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land 
with a curse. The Lord in verse 4 is sending Elijah the prophet. Not the actual Elijah the prophet of the book of 1 Kings, but John the Baptist who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1, 16 and 17 says that, that John the Baptist is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Arrogance. Now let's see with some cross-references. Chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me. A sampling of this we find in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians will illustrate for us what it means to be arrogant against the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Whenever we exceed what is written in the Word of God, then we take that carnal wisdom and we use it in the local church. When we use carnal, fleshly wisdom in the local church, those people are the arrogant ones in behalf of one against the other. The ones who use the word of God are not arrogant. They are humble. The ones who do not use the word of God exceed what's written. They are full of pride. They are full of arrogance. Conceit. That's what is in them if they exceed what is written in the word. Then 4.18, 4.18 and 4.18 to 21. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Verse 18, some of them are arrogant as though the apostle were not coming. The mice are at play when the cat's away, right? The rats are at play when the cat's away. And that's what they're doing here. We're going to do our own thing. We're not going to respect his authority. We're not going to respect what he says. No. He says that they are arrogant as though they're going to be able to do whatever they feel like doing. And then in 19, he says that... He's going to find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. 
What do they actually accomplish? We know what their words are, but what are they accomplishing? Do they have any power to do anything? Are they producing any fruit? Are they producing godliness? Is anything like that happening with them? We're going to find out. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. By that, he means it's not a matter of empty words. It's not a matter of just saying things. It's about the consequence or the result, the fruit of what you say. 21. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? When he says, shall I come to you with a rod, who deserves a rod? The stubborn, the arrogant, the ones who refuse to repent, the ones who refuse to be humble. Correct? He gives them an alternative. He gives them two options. He says, if you remain stubborn, if you remain stony, insensitive to the word of God, then I'm going to come to you in a harsh way. I'm going to come with the rod. Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters a rock? Jeremiah 23, 29. Should I come that way, Paul's saying? That, that's if they remain in their arrogance. But what if they humble themselves? What if they are humble? Then he'll come with love and a spirit of gentleness. It's one or the other. The problem is not the apostle or the word of God. The problem is the people. Further illustrated in 5 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 5. The chapter has to do with the Corinthians not confronting and expelling a man in persistent sexual immorality. Chapter 5, verse 1. We will read 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind, as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. What were they supposed to do? Remove him from the midst of the local church. But because they didn't do it, he says that they have become arrogant. Why? Because they're not practicing what is written, but they are exceeding what is written with their human wisdom. So therefore, they are confronted for doing so. Next, we go to chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Thirteen verses 4 to 7. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
Many people will quickly go to this chapter on love and mangle it. They will distort it. They pervert the meaning of the Apostle Paul. In verse 4, they say love is patient, kind, not jealous, doesn't brag, not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, so on. But then they make love contradict verse 6. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. But they are rejoicing in unrighteousness. They are rejoicing in falsehood, not the truth. And as well, verse 4. The one who confronts sin according to the word of God is not the arrogant one. Didn't didn't we just see from chapters 4 and 5, two examples from chapters 4 and 5, that the arrogant ones who are not acting in love are those who exceed what's written in the Bible. The arrogant ones are those who will not, do not confront the sin that's in the midst of the church. So the loving one is the one who is practicing what the apostle is teaching in the whole letter. The whole letter from chapters 1 to 15 is dealing with all of the conflicts and controversies, all of the strife happening in the Corinthian church. And he's correcting it and expecting the godly among them to tighten their belts, stand up, use the sword of the Spirit, and deal with the matters. Correct? So they're not the arrogant ones. They are the loving ones. The arrogant ones are those who refuse to do it. We further find in Malachi 3, 3 verse 14, they say it's vain to serve God. There's no point in serving God. Shall we go to Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah the prophet also confronts the people, exposing their sins, and this is their response. Jeremiah chapter 2. We read, from 2.20 to 25, 2.20. He indicts them. Many of the oracles, many of the prophecies of the prophets and the apostles even are indictments or lists of sins, lists of crimes against God. 2.20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill, And under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, The stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, 
I am not defiled. I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her away? All who seek her will not become weary. In her month, they will find her. Keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. They're saying they're going to do whatever their desires, passionate desires, lusty desires, want them to do. They're not going to listen to God. It's hopeless to listen to God. I would rather have strangers and not the Lord as my husband. That's what they're saying. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. 7, 8 to 11. 7, 8 to 11. Jeremiah is at the temple and he is confronting the people coming to the temple to worship. 7, verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. What are they doing? They're practicing sin, breaking the Ten Commandments. Then they come to worship God and they pretend that everything is fine. It's okay to jointly break the Ten Commandments, but go worship God and everything will be fine. We are delivered. There's peace. God is pleased with me. It's okay to be a murderer and a Christian, a thief and a Christian, an adulterer and a Christian, a swearer and a Christian, an idolater and a Christian. They put things together like this that do not belong together. And they think that they are delivered from the wrath of God. They are delivered from any punishment because they went to worship God. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah describes his experience at the potter's house. He went to the potter's house. He went to the potter's house in order to see that the potter is able to do whatever he wants with the clay that is before him. He can shape the clay as he wants. And that God is able to do the same with the people. After they hear this illustration, 1812, they say, 18 verse 12. But they will say, it is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. It's hopeless. We're not going to do what you want us to do, what you're preaching to us. 
We're going to follow our own plans because our way is better than your way, God. We're going to act according to the stubbornness of our own evil heart. Yes, they are willing to call their own deeds stubborn and evil. If you pay attention to evildoers, they will admit what they're doing is sin, stubbornness, hard-heartedness, evil, wicked. They'll use those words to describe their own sins. Some of them will do so. Listen carefully, and they will do it. But it's not as though, it's not as though this is an Old Testament problem. It's also a New Testament problem that people think you can put sin plus Christian together. We just read in 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthians were doing that. That man who was committing sexual sin was saying, thinking, and the, some of the Corinthians were saying and thinking, oh yeah, he's a brother, he's fine. Why are you expecting me to say something to him? He's a Christian. You can commit sexual sin and be a Christian at the same time. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They're saying that. What about also in the book of James? The book of James chapter 2. The book of James chapter 2. Two fourteen to twenty. Two fourteen to twenty. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled." And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Remember, the people are always using words in self-identification, self-profession. They'll say, this is who I am, you cannot challenge me. I am a Christian. Why are you challenging me? I've been raised in the church. Why are you challenging me? I know what I believe. Jesus is my Lord. Why are you challenging me? James challenges them. He says in 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? These people are saying they have faith. They are in the local church. But then they find that there is a brother or sister with a need, 
and they just pronounce a blessing. They say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Yes, I'm going to say a prayer for you. May God help you. And then what happens? They walk away. They forget. They neglect. They don't actually pray. And they don't do anything to help the physical need. They have no desire for the physical need to be met. So what is it? They're saying things, but they're not doing things. They are thinking it's vain to serve God. If I serve my brother, serve my neighbor, love my neighbor as myself, then that's vain. That's not going to lead to anything. I'm just going to have less of what I used to have. And there's no need to do it. Somehow, some way, they'll get what they need to get. But he's saying that that's a dead faith. And he's saying that the demons are better than you. The demons, they understand the knowledge of God and they shudder. They don't believe truly, but they believe in the knowledge of God. They know the truth about who God is, that there's one God. And it causes them to tremble or shudder, but not people. If we were to tell the average Christian that there is one God, you know his answer? I knew that. Why are you telling me? What's the big deal? And then they move on. When the demons think that there is one God, when they contemplate that, when that's on their mind, they tremble. They're shaking because they know the day of judgment. On that day of judgment, they're going to meet that one God and he's going to throw them into the lake of fire. So those who say it's vain to serve God, those who think they know God and don't actually follow him, they are the ones who are wicked and they are the ones who are worse than demons. Worse than demons. How can a human be worse than a demon? Well, they are. If they don't shudder at the thought of the knowledge of God. Okay, and then let's deal with misinterpreting the circumstances. Misinterpreting the circumstances. 3.15 of Malachi. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Here we find that the prophet, he temporarily misinterpreted the circumstances. Temporarily, he misunderstood. He says this, Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, that's his confession. He knows that to be true. But momentarily, this is what happens to him. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. 
They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17 is the transition. He is a very troubled man seeing the wickedness of the wicked. And everything they, they do is blessed by God. Until verse 17, he says, Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes O lord when aroused you will despise their form when my heart was embittered and i was pierced within then i was senseless and ignorant i was like a beast before you nevertheless i am continually with you you have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The prophet, when he understood the final destiny of the wicked, that's when the transition occurs in verses 17 to 20. When he understood the final outcome, the day of judgment for the wicked, then he was consoled. Then he was comforted. Then he had hope when he thought about the wicked in reference to the day of judgment. And he repents in 21 to 24. He calls himself senseless, ignorant, and a beast. When I was thinking that way, when I was perplexed and alarmed that everything was going fine with the wicked, that was when I was senseless, ignorant, and beastly. He's humbling himself. So what did he recognize? He recognized that God's counsel will guide him, 24, 
God will receive him to glory. In 25, the only one that he has in heaven is God. And on earth, his desire is no one but God. He has no one in heaven but God. And on earth, he desires no one else but God. God is his portion forever. The nearness of God is his only good. God is his only refuge. And he will one day praise God for all this. Is this not what Jesus meant when he said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent? Why is it that people are chasing their fantasies? Why is it that people are chasing their dreams? Why is it that people are so engrossed in pursuing the things of the world instead of desiring to know God through Jesus Christ for eternal life? The knowledge of God. That I may know Him and the fellowship of his sufferings, the apostle says, Philippians 3. The rich young ruler, the rich young ruler, Luke 18, 18. Luke 18, 18. When the Lord Jesus confronted this rich young ruler, it's in Luke 18, 18 to 30. Notice what he does. 18, 18. And we'll, we read to verse 23. 18, 18. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He does turn away, and he never does what Jesus instructed him to do. What, was his, what were his eyes fixed on? The things of the world, the possessions of the world. Because Jesus knew this, and he vainly says, all these things I have kept from my youth. That's said in arrogance. There's no way anybody has kept all those commandments, especially in his youth. But he's saying, from my youth I've been doing all this. No, it's impossible. He was unfaithful to God, so he had committed adultery with his possessions. He was a murderer because he was not loving his neighbor as himself, so he was murdering his neighbor. He was stealing 
Because it all belongs to God, and if you don't use it for the ministry of God, for the work of God, then you are a thief. Do not bear false witness, right? If he says he loves his brother, he loves his countrymen, he loves the assembly in the local synagogue, he loves the people there, then he doesn't help them giving to the poor, helping the poor, not idolatrous toward his possessions, then he is bearing false witness. And also honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. What if there are those in the assembly who are his parents and he's not helping them properly? What about honoring his heavenly father? He's not honoring his heavenly father because he's not obeying the will of his heavenly father. Therefore, he's saying here, all these things, all these things I have kept from my youth, but demonstrably so, as we just interpreted verse 20, he's not. And also we know practically so, there's nobody who's able to do all of that from his youth. So he loves the world, he does not love God. He wants to be in the world and know the world, but not know God. Because he believes the arrogant are blessed. He believes like the unbelievers in Malachi. That's the way to live. Not live for God. Let's not be this way. Let's be like we read in the end of the book of Malachi those who fear the Lord and who give attention to one another and speak to one another. Let's be that way. Living for the life to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.